Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to the Dear Lifesaver podcast by Islamic Relief UK. Here we're tackling some big questions we have about aid in the 21st century, finding out what it takes to save a life and exploring how faith factors into all of this. The biggest question is, could you help save and transform more lives by learning something new about humanitarian aid? I'm Nabila and I'm Zara and in this episode we're talking to Pippa Biddle. In 2014, an essay titled The Problem with Little White Girls, Boys and Voluntourism went viral. In it, the author shared their experiences previously engaging with voluntourism and revealing the detrimental impact it was having on vulnerable communities across the world. That essay belonged to Pippa, and now some years later, she's the author of the recently released book, Hours to Explore, Privilege, Power and the Paradox of Voluntourism. We're speaking to Pippa to help us unpack what happens when the tourism industry meets international development, its dangers to your local and global community, and how to more meaningfully engage with volunteer work. Hey Pippa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today to talk about the subject of voluntourism and the work you've done with your newly released book. Um, I imagine a lot of our listeners, especially those who have volunteered with us as a charity, will be curious to know what this term voluntourism means. Uh, Would you be able to describe it for us? Yeah, absolutely. Voluntourism does not actually have a super concrete widely accepted definition because it's actually more of a marketing or anti-marketing term. However, the way that I define voluntourism is it's any trip of uh, typically four weeks or less, but it can be longer, to a community outside of your own with the intention of incorporating any amount of volunteer work into what you are doing. The volunteer work is predominantly unskilled, um, but does not need to be. However, it is in the vast majority of cases necessary that the the skills necessary to do the work are not skills that the volunteer has. So for example, teaching is not unskilled, but there are many, many people doing voluntourism teaching uh, because they do not have that skill. as opposed to uh, like painting a wall, which again, not entirely unskilled, it takes some practice, but you can hand almost any child a paintbrush and they can figure out how to get paint on the wall to stick. Might not look good, but they can do it. Uh, That is also very much under the voluntourism umbrella. Um, I specify outside of your own community, not international travel, because especially in the United States, huge amounts of voluntourism are happening domestically for us. So people traveling around the United States to do volunteer work in a voluntourism context. And so by taking the word international out of it, it allows, I believe, it to be more inclusive of how it's really about someone of greater privilege going into a community of less privilege versus crossing an international boundary. So you mentioned that engaging in voluntourism isn't something that's exclusive to doing as an international practice. But international travel and indeed tourism, especially on the scale we experience it today, is a modern phenomenon. Is that the same for voluntourism? Yeah, so something that sort of confuses people often when they first pick up my book is that the first few chapters um, are about the past, Uh, not the recent past. They start in 1840. And there's a very real reason for that, and that's that voluntourism started in 1840. The seeds of voluntourism are even older than that and deeply rooted in missionary culture, which has been around for as long as organized religion has been around, specifically Christianity. But voluntourism itself began to develop right alongside the development of mass tourism with the Industrial Revolution and greater access to short-term travel. Um, Travel and tourism, again, not new. But it was isolated to a very small, very elite group of people who could choose to travel uh, 
for fun, uh, who are not being forced to go place to place because of um, conflict or because of the industry that they were part of uh, commerce wise. And so as mass tourism became more accessible, parallel to that, there was a uh, really sort of philanthropic push to carry the values of quote unquote civilized places to less huge air quotes, civilized places. And with the carrying of those values, there was this idea that those places will become more like us. Uh, They will become more sanitized in many ways. They'll become safer for the uh, Western eye. And safer doesn't even necessarily mean like crime rate, but uh, it's, it's really a moral judgment as to how people choose to live their lives. Something I write about in the book is, uh, English reformer Mary Carpenter, who spent a significant amount of time in India doing education reform and and trying to increase access to education for Indian women. And when you hear that just as a short little sentence, that sounds quite valiant. Um, And then you learn a bit more about how she defined an education for an Indian woman. And a key part for her was that Indian women learn to be more like English women that they take on the roles and responsibilities that we now identify as extraordinarily sexist and limiting, uh, that at the time were ascribed to English women. And she thought that by forcing those roles and responsibilities upon Indian women, she could uh, civilize the nation. And so that that one sentence of this British reformer bringing education uh, to women in India sounds great. And you dig a little bit below it and you're like, okay, there's a lot going on here. This is, this is very, very problematic. And that's really the story behind voluntourism. It's a story behind global mass tourism in general, is that there's often this valiant, super simple sounding facade surface layer And then you look below it and there is a deep, deep, deep current of uh, racist tropes, of sexist beliefs, of colonialist ideologies that undergird the way in which uh, communities of privilege have historically treated uh, the places that they believe they have a right to go. Uh, Pippa, one of the conversations that Sarah and I had after reading your book was about how in the UK, um, growing up here, there are a lot of opportunities uh, through school and even afterwards with volunteering abroad. Um, Personally, the school that I went to had a partnership with another school in Ghana and every year a group of students would go out there and do things like um, building walls and painting, um, similar to the experiences that you had um, with no real sustainable changes made. And um, the whole idea was that it would be something that was positive for your CV and made you kind of more accomplished. Um, I wonder if you could shed some light on your own experiences and what led you to write your book. Yeah, so quite similar to your experience. I was offered the opportunity at 16 to travel to Tanzania uh, with a group from my school to build a library at an orphanage. Um, and to go on a safari, which for me was an extraordinarily compelling pitch because I uh, had already traveled extensively with my family and my parents um, really prioritized travel for us. And it was, it was an extraordinary privilege that I had that as a kid. Uh, we traveled all over South and Central America um, and I'd never been to Africa. And I, 
I say never been to Africa specifically because I didn't know enough about the continent to really differentiate between countries at that time. And in fact, when I first heard about the trip to Tanzania, if you'd asked me to point to it on a map, I probably would have picked Kenya or Uganda uh, and not know. I knew the general region, uh, but I really didn't know what the hell I was getting into. And what really sold me was the safari part. You mean that I get to go for two and a half, three weeks to the other side of the world, feel good about myself and also see baby lions. Like what more of a compelling pitch can there be? When I actually got to Tanzania, it didn't take very long to realize that one, I had no idea about Tanzanian culture or political history or cultural norms or anything that that someone should know before going to a community. I mean, I was just completely out of my element. But what really for me became the crux of my experience was that I realized while I was there, uh, while we were trying to build this library, that the work we'd been doing was being redone while we were sleeping. Um, in such a way that we would not be aware that the work we were doing was so bad. And that's formed really the core of the piece that went viral in 2014 and, and something that I really add to in the book because there were other things going on that were problems. Um, the We were not allowed to eat with the girls. There was a very good reason for why we were not allowed to eat with the girls. It's because they weren't eating the same food as us. Uh, we also were housed in the orphanage on their grounds, which, any expert in child protection or welfare will tell you is horrific practice. You do not house strangers without proper training or background checks within close proximity of vulnerable children. You, you, that is extraordinarily dangerous and prioritizes the experience of the volunteer far above the welfare of these children. And Many of them were about my age. So calling them children is not necessarily fair. They were young women. They were strong. They were smart. They were self-possessed, uh, but they still were extraordinarily vulnerable and we should not have been in that situation. Um, that same summer, I also went to the Dominican Republic for the first time. And that was through a very different type of setup. Uh, it wasn't an organized group trip. It was my mom and me and a couple friends of the family who had gotten involved with a uh, summer camp for HIV positive and impacted uh, pediatric patients uh, in the Dominican Republic through our church. And it was, a, it was a very different experience, but very problematic as well that I, as a 16 year old with no medical experience, no deep understanding of the realities of uh, these children as Dominicans, as Dominicans from impoverished backgrounds, let alone as children who are uh, HIV infected or impacted, uh, was not just living in the same compound as them, but in the same rooms as them. Um, and that was a Dominican-led project with Dominican volunteers and Dominican doctors and Dominican personnel, but I was given unprecedented access to really vulnerable people. And as I learned more about voluntourism, it really became evident that that is the one of the hallmarks 
of the practice is the prioritizing of volunteer access over child welfare um, and community welfare more broadly. Um, and so for me, when I started calling myself sort of a little white girl, a lot of it was the idea of being a little white girl as a ticket to access places, as this thing that I carried with me that is hugely visible, that is uh, not something I can hide. I didn't choose to be the way that I am, but that has given me um, access to people and places and communities that prioritizes my own development and learning and experience and happiness over their basic safety. Um, Pippa, during your experiences um, in Tanzania and the Dominican Republic, at what point did you realize you were engaging in volunteerism and what changes did you make in your life following this? For me, the process of seeing myself as problematic and having taken part in something problematic took a really long time. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. One is while the conversation around voluntourism as a problem was happening, I was not part of that conversation. It was not something that intersected with my life. So it wasn't as if I was hearing all these people around me talking about how voluntourism was bad. And I was saying, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then suddenly had an epiphany that I was part of the problem. It really wasn't something that I was hearing. Now, is it possible that I just simply wasn't listening? Absolutely. Um, the reality is that we are receptive to the things that we have the vocabulary for, going back to gaining a vocabulary. And I did not have a very robust social justice vocabulary, nor a very robust international development vocabulary until I went to college and I started studying anthropology and I started reading a lot of ethnographies <laughs> and a lot of the most iconic ethnographies written by anthropologists are both beautiful and um, terrible at the same time. I mean, you look at things like Colin Turnbull's work with the um, Mabuti tribes and uh, these, these sort of stunning stories that just pull you in, that provide this sort of National Geographic uh, experience of immersion into another culture. And then you start thinking, and hopefully if you have the right professors, they start asking you, why was he allowed to be there? And that for me really kicked off a process of gaining a better understanding about access to communities and what it means to be given access and to take access that made me start questioning, okay, why have I been given access? Why have I felt the right to take access uh, to communities when I'm reading these books by these famed, famed anthropologists and, and I'm leaving with this icky feeling of why, why were they there and, and how were they allowed to do this? But how is that any different from what I've done? And that was this really, I think, kicked off this process of gaining that vocabulary and gaining better understanding of not just past actions and my own actions, but that there is a continuous thread between the two. That uh, what I took part in is not just something inspired by or influenced by colonialism, but is really colonialism for the 21st century. Uh, and 
it's furthered by social media. It's furthered by this very image centric way that many of us engage with the world, um, but it is not unique to our time. It is something that has been repeated over and over and over again. And, and recognizing myself as part of that um, repetitive practice was really, really helpful for me in understanding how I can't think of myself as a lone actor. I'm in fact part of a, a bigger system. So Pippa, one of the things I'm curious about is if there is a distinction between international development and voluntourism and exactly what that is. Would you be able to speak on that? Yeah, so um, voluntourism is something done in the name of international development, but it is not emblematic of what international development when done correctly should ever be or look like. Um, successful international development addresses systemic problems in systemic ways. Uh, it meets people's immediate needs where they are. Every human being deserves access to high quality healthcare, high quality education, shelter, nutrition. Every human deserves that. And international development, um, especially in emergency situations, often has to swoop in with short-term solutions to address those problems. But when done correctly, it does not stop there. It builds towards systems of greater self-sufficiency. The key with voluntourism is it never moves beyond those band-aid solutions. Voluntourism as a practice is in fact entirely built upon the replication and um, repetition of band-aid solutions like painting a wall. Building a building is not to me international development. Creating a school system is. School systems may require buildings, but it becomes true international development when it's not just that there's a building that says school across the top of it, but there is a robust system of education with a locally led curriculum, with local teachers, uh, and ideally a pipeline for new teachers uh, so that people have access to um, multi-generational change. Voluntourism historically has not led to that multi-generational change. It's the reason why volunteer companies, uh, most Trips for volunteerism are run by for-profit companies, some are nonprofits, but most volunteerism trip providers have worked in the same communities for a very, very long time doing the same types of projects. If it was true international development, they wouldn't still be there. Uh, now, there are regions of the world where conflict and um, really like geographic uncertainty has required very long-term international partnership. That's unavoidable. I mean, um, voluntourism does not address those issues. It believes that building a school is impact. International development believes when done right, that having the school system with children who are now teaching in that school, who went to that school and are now investing in their community is impact. And that's like a really crucial difference. So speaking to the value of some of your own experiences, Pippa, I'd just like to read a quote from your book. Um, in On to an End, which is the last chapter of your book, you write, whether you see yourself as an adventurer, a nomad, a traveller, a volunteer or a tourist, if you itch to explore and your feet always seem to point in a new direction, you are changing the world. The only question left is what kind of change will you choose to make? Um, I found that this quote in particular gave me a, a very uplifting sense of agency over some of the choices 
um, I've made so far as as well as the ones I can make in the future. Um, what advice could you give from your own experience on how to take accountability going forward with without demonizing yourself and others? That's a really good question. Um, and accountability is absolutely the right word. Uh, so there's a quote uh, blurb from Jane Goodall on the front of my book and something that is not necessarily fully disclosed is that I spent a year between um, high school and college working for the Jane Goodall Institute. I, it was a full-time job with the nonprofit Roots and Shoots, which is their youth program. And what I did was speak to students and educators about how they can change the world and how they can become more involved specifically in their own communities through volunteer work. And something that I heard Jane say early in me working for the organization was that she finds it humorous when people say they want to change the world as if they aren't already because every time you flush a toilet you're changing the world <laughs> we don't need to necessarily hold ourselves or begin to hold ourselves accountable to the world because we already are just by existing on this planet regardless of how connected we feel to everyone else we are deeply deeply connected to every Every other human on this planet. And some people have tried to articulate that connection through the concept of global citizenship. Um, I really don't like the concept of global citizenship. To me, it's almost a excuse to externalize your own culpability and your own accountability and apply it to other places rather than to your own community. And what I really want people to do is I believe travel is transformative. I believe that travel can be positively generative, uh, but I also believe that we need to do a hell of a lot better as individuals, holding ourselves accountable to our own communities at home. So um, as part of my role, um, I work across um, kind of social media for Islamic Relief. And a question that we often receive from our kind of audiences and followers is, um, how they can travel with us and volunteer abroad. So at the moment, that, that's not actually something that we offer at all. Um, and I guess given your experiences and incredible knowledge, is there some advice you can give Pippa as to kind of what would be a sound response for those who reach out with this question? Um, that's a really interesting question. And I've been talking actually with a, a number of people about it recently because the uh, requests from donors to see their donations quote unquote inaction uh, are not unique to any single nonprofit and can be quite um, hard to say no to, especially when checks are big. Uh, I think the best way to have a conversation around that is just to ask why over and over again. Um, why do you feel you have to go there? What do you hope to accomplish when you are there? Often the why is uh, something that could be addressed through a different type of trip. The what is something that could be addressed through a different type of donor education. And if they continue to insist, uh, that's a really good opportunity to, um, I think, do a little education around privilege and access and, and why someone thinks they should be allowed in. Uh, because it is understandable that the adrenaline rush and dopamine hit that you get when you see people show you gratitude is attractive. Um, that does not mean that we need to kowtow to it. And it does not mean that donors should be encouraged to uh, continue a practice of demanding that nonprofits uh, 
facilitate their poverty experiences. Now, there are cases where, for example, like a foundation might want to do a research trip to gain a better understanding of a project that's happening on the ground. Um, to me, that's very, very different than loading donors on a bus with cameras and water bottles and saying, hey, here, go see what you've done, see the school you've built, take pictures, and then we'll get back on the bus and go have a steak dinner. It's about professionalism, professionalizing when we do choose to go places, when we do choose to take people places and educating why and when we don't. Pippa, what do you think the future of volunteerism is, especially in the context of the global pandemic and, and how this has drastically altered industries across the world? Yeah, so uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been really interesting for volunteerism because in some ways it's put it on pause, much like the rest of the global tourism industry. In other ways, it's forced it underground. So there's actually many trip providers who never stopped offering trips, um, mostly for individuals, so not group organized trips, uh, but in fact, were advertising their trips as an opportunity to go somewhere and not have to wear a mask which included going places like Tanzania, where uh, the government was in complete denial of what was happening. Uh, Tanzanians were being denied access to proper health care and vaccinations, and yet voluntourists were being sold on the idea that, yay, you can go to Tanzania and not worry about the virus. It's not that it's not here, it's just that you don't have to wear a mask, um, which really underlines so many of the problems that we've talked about and is really, really icky and scary. Uh, so yes, volunteerism has had this bit of a breathing period, but also the worst of it has just continued and gone underground. Um, I think that the slowdown has given trip providers themselves who were already questioning a little bit of how they were doing what they were doing, an opportunity to reframe the trips that they offer because really almost two years of trips were wiped off their books. So all of a sudden they can look at their offerings and say, okay, what here are we actually comfortable with? What here do we need to change? Because there's a lot of uh, doing as we've done because it's easy in all of tour, in really every industry, but in all of tourism. Um, and it hasn't been easy the last two years. For sure. And I think that it's also an even riper time to have this conversation and, and raise that awareness. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, um, Pippa, and, and helping to raise awareness of this really important subject at this really critical time. Thank you so much, um, Pippa, for, for your honesty and inspiring and insightful words. I really appreciate you guys having me and you are engaging in this conversation, both as individuals and as an institution that sort of speaking to the last lines of the book uh, creates change. It just decides the kind of change it wants to create. Um, and that is working so hard to provide greater equity to humans around the planet. Um, I think that's sort of what we all need to be striving for. Thank you to Pippa for joining us for that conversation. After each recording, Sarah and I like to get back together and discuss some of the things that have resonated with us the most, and maybe some of the lessons we've implemented in our daily lives. Sarah, what did you take away from that conversation? How did you find it? It was a bit of a scary conversation for me because obviously it makes you reflect on how you've previously engaged with volunteering work and just how intentional they were, and but definitely fruitful in the way of like how to take accountability going forward so it, it's like it's just so funny that this conversation came along because I'm, I I had an experience of, of going to a of going abroad and basically um doing some of the same things that Pip was talking about and I remember coming back and not many years later feeling very comfortable talking about that experience and I remember when people would would talk to me about it and I didn't feel a sense of 
a sense of ease. I didn't feel a sense of pride. There was quite an unsettling feeling and I didn't have the vocabulary for it. This conversation was really good in terms of like giving this, um, giving that feeling a language and giving this subject a, the platform that it deserves. But I guess one of the more uplifting um, takeaways was how to meaningfully engage with volunteer work going forward. Like it's so much harder to commit to something on a weekly basis that's just down the road because it's so easy to opt out of and it doesn't have as much of the glamour and um, the allure of like getting on a plane. A couple of months ago I went to visit the Newham Community Project in London and that's like a family-run project. It was built from kind of uh, just seeing the I guess local communities suffer and struggle and um, this family have, so they're one of Islamic Relief's partners and I went for uh, just to kind of um, take photographs and stuff for social media. And that day we were helping with a um, with a distribution, so food pack distribution for the local community there. Um, and just seeing that, it was such a like, mashallah, like a really humble, like, you know, husband and wife, the children were there as well, helping out and packing things. And they had this really like disciplined system going and, and I think if we just look around us and look locally, like there, there is so much that we can do. It has such an impact on the heart. And I think just being there and being around people that genuinely are, you know, helping their own communities, like it, it really does impact you. Um, so there's this really helpful Guardian article that features Pippa. And in that she talks about how these community projects are still very much needed, but they are they need to be led by community um, members and and locals it it shouldn't be it, she said it shouldn't have been her ever um, and that even this conversation needs to come from the communities themselves rather than her placing herself at the forefront and being the spokesperson for volunteerism which I also think is really important within that same article she talks about how she's doing what she's good at so that's fundraising like where she is living in the states and um, kind of bringing people together in her local community to help those in the Dominican Republic like she's not visiting anymore because she understands that her presence there isn't beneficial but she's doing what she can like locally and fundraising and you know coordinating programs from where she is and she sees you know sees that um her like physical presence over there is not benefiting anyone so just trickling into this conversation about how the pandemic has changed volunteerism i know that pippa said that it subverted a lot of the volunteerist activities there is a really helpful article on uh, npr called the pandemic changed the world of volunteerism some folks like the new way better covid has put like has changed things up for the volunteerism industry which is why it's a really good time to have this conversation as well because as the world eases out of lockdown or navigates its way out of it and some of those uh volunteerism hotspots start to like resurface this kind of conversation and the awareness around it could dramatically change how successful those those um volunteerism hotspots are in the future but also just how more meaningfully we engage with our local communities, especially those that have been hit by the, by the COVID-19 crisis, food banks and um, community welfare centres, etc. So definitely like one of the things that I hope to implement going forward is like just just exactly what I'm signing up to. And I even think about like some of the things that we hold here at Islamic Relief, some of those like uh, challenges that we, we host. And I think that is an important distinction to make. Um, when it comes to fundraising and feed that back into a community that needs it. I think it's a whole other conversation that Pippa is trying to raise awareness of around what our involvement is or how we use our privilege and how detached we are from the issue. Um, and so I think as, as long as that's factored in, 
to when you decide to engage with volunteer work, you're taking accountability. Um, if anything resonated with you from this episode or inspired you that you'd like to share with us or the listening community, get in touch with us. Um, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Islamic Relief UK. And for future episodes, make sure you guys subscribe to the Dear Lifesaver podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major streaming services. Thank you again to Pippa for joining us on this episode and to you, our listeners. Um, we'll see you next time, inshallah. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum.